Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, bringing you the truth of Jesus Christ and the Catholic faith, the Catholic faith that comes down to us for 2,000 years. We are here to help you love your faith, to know your faith, and to live your faith with purpose and passion. We want you to be transformed by Christ and set on fire by His Spirit. Sometimes on this channel, we have guests, and today I would like to introduce Trent Horn, who is a Catholic convert. He is a Catholic speaker an author of several books, and a Catholic apologist, which means he defends the Catholic faith for a living. Most people know that he is a staff apologist at Catholic Answers, and many people might not know that he now has his own podcast called The Council of Trent, which I highly recommend. And it's a very in-depth podcast for refuting uh, different uh, religions and beliefs and helping people to understand the truth of the Catholic faith. And Trent uh, has dialogued with countless atheists and agnostics and skeptics, and he's even had several public debates. So, you know, when it comes to the topic of atheism and helping people to know God, you know, I can't think of uh, many other people to invite onto this show but Trent Horn. So I would like to in uh, introduce you, Trent, and I would like to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a treat to be here. It's a pleasure to uh, to have you here. And I myself uh, was someone growing up, and I asked many questions. How do we know God exists? How do we know that uh, he's real? I mean, where's the proof? And, you know, 5,000 years ago, we had uh, belief in faith. You know, we, we just said believe, you know, because we had the Bible. But now we have science. And do they contradict each other? And a lot of people are coming uh, up with these same questions. Do they contradict each other? And many people answer the questions, well, you just have to believe, or you just have to have faith. Well, God's a mystery. <laughs> you know, these are not really satisfying answers. And I find from my uh, long apologetics history that many people are leaving the faith because they're not receiving answers to their questions. And I find, uh, well, last, <clears throat> last time I checked, I think there was 4% of the earth was <clears throat> atheist. But uh, with that being said, many, many more people are becoming uh, non-believers uh, or skeptics. And it's not right. because God doesn't exist. I think it's because perhaps we haven't given them good uh, reasons to believe. And they haven't looked up or done a lot of real research on this topic. And uh, I would like to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that uh, science has greatly benefited mankind. Uh, I really, the inquiry of the scientific spirit can be traced back to, uh, well, b before the Middle Ages, of course, in ancient Greek and Roman philosophers. But when Christianity emerged on the scene, it's not like science just died or something like that. There were actually a lot of technological breakthroughs, even within the early Middle Ages in farming technology, uh, in uh, water mills and things like that. But in the middle Middle Ages, uh, we have people like Albert Magnus and others who sought to understand God's creation uh, by engaging in what was called at that time natural philosophy that everything had a theistic understanding to it because everyone generally believed God existed. It wasn't until the 19th century that the term science or scientist referred to the strict discipline of seeking natural explanations for the things we observe. And science, as like I said, has greatly benefited society, but it doesn't mean science can answer every question we have. And I think a lot of people think, oh, there maybe there are mysteries out there. I don't need to believe in God because one day science will figure it all out. Uh, but if you talk to physicists, uh, if you talk to other people in hard sciences, they will tell you that science can tell us a lot. It'll never tell us everything, uh, you know, and there are certain questions that are just off limits to science. Like, is science important? That's a value question. Uh, does objective morality exist? 
Uh, what if the universe came into existence from nothing? What caused that? Uh, if it's nothing from a state of nothingness, science relies on matter and energy for its explanations. Uh, a state of nothingness can't have any scientific explanation involved in it whatsoever. So there are a lot of questions. And here we can use reason and philosophy to arrive at, at an ultimate cause of the entire universe. And so science is great at explaining the world God created, but it can't answer every question. And ultimately, we have good reasons to believe uh, that the world was created by the God of classical theism. And uh, before I forget, for our audience out there, uh, if you know someone who is struggling with atheism, if you would like to know more on the topic yourself, besides Trent's podcast, which I will link below, I would like to recommend his book. It's called Answering Atheism, and I will put it right here on display for all to see. But it's a very good case for the existence of God and just not only the arguments of what to say, but also how to say it. Uh, many times we either don't know what to say or how to say it, but this book presents both. And uh, I think it's a good book and I highly recommend it. Uh, so today we're going to be discussing specifically some uh, proof for the existence of God. Um, but it's not necessarily proof the way we think of like two plus two is four. Cause, so before we get into the different types of proofs for God, can you explain a little bit more about what that means? Right. Yeah. So some people think, oh, well, if it's a proof, that means I should be able to read it. Anybody can read it. And everybody's going to agree that it uh, firmly establishes beyond any doubt whatsoever the existence of God. And you're right. Mathematical proofs, at least simple mathematical proofs, can do that. But that's because you're working out axioms that everybody already agrees with and no nobody really denies, like that one equals one, for example. Uh, but the catechism, uh, I think it's, it's around like paragraphs 33 and 34. It says that the proofs for God are not like proofs in the, the natural sciences. It's more like a series of converging and convincing arguments. So the proofs for God, and there's different arguments that can be put forward. Some that are stronger than others. The ones that I like to offer tend to be deductive proofs. They argue from universal principles to a particular conclusion, namely that God exists. And so if you believe that the premises are more likely to be true than false, and there's no error in the reasoning, then you've got yourself a good argument for belief in God. So basically what we're saying is the theist side says, I mean, neither side <clears throat> has absolute proof for anything, but what we're saying is there's more proof for the existence of God than not. And it makes much more sense to believe in God than not. Is that what we're saying? Uh, yeah, I would say that the balance of evidence, because there is evidence against the existence of God. I mean, even St. Thomas Aquinas put forward two arguments against God, the problem of evil and the problem of human beings naturally coming to know the causes around them and precluding God, uh, the argument from incomplete knowledge. Uh, but when you bracket that with all the evidence for God, the evidence for God, I would say outweighs it. Absolutely. And uh, so why don't we talk about some of this today? And uh, maybe we could talk about the first cause, which is uh, causal finitism. And could you talk about uh, a little bit about that and how it points to God? Sure. So that'd be fun today to talk about some new arguments that uh, people have been developing for the existence of God. Um, a classic argument for the existence of God <clears throat> is the cosmological argument. And there's two types of cosmological arguments. One seeks to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? dealing with the universe, whether it's necessary, it has to exist. We see, well, it doesn't have to exist. It's contingent. 
So there must be a necessary cause, something that must exist that explains why the universe exists. Another kind of cosmological argument says that the universe had a finite beginning in the past. And so all of space, time, matter, and energy began from nothing. And so a cause must have brought it into existence from nothing. The most famous version of this argument is the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, what makes it different is that the Kalam argument seeks to prove the past is finite, and you can do that in one of two ways. One way is through scientific investigation, like Big Bang cosmology, but that's very tentative. I think that's a weaker kind of evidence to use. The stronger is philosophical arguments, and the philosophical arguments seek to show that an actually infinite past cannot obtain, either because actual infinites are impossible or because you can't form them sequentially. Like you can't, if you add, if every day in the past happens one day at a time, uh, you cannot have uh, today, today will never arrive. Now there are some objections to the philosophical arguments for the finitude of the past, because people will say, well, we don't understand infinity, or if the past was beginningless, you could do that. There has been a slate of arguments defending a, a, a theory called causal finitism as a term coined by the Baylor University philosopher Alexander Pruss. Pruss's contention is that causal chains, he tries to take it away from time and infinity and just focus on causal chains and saying, look, you can't have, if you have an effect, you cannot have an infinite series of causes before that effect, otherwise the effect is never actually explained. And so Press uh, puts forward a, a series of thought experiments to show that this kind of infinite series can't happen. And there's a lot of thought experiments like this in the literature to show, well, you can't complete an infinite causal series to get an effect. One famous example is Thompson's lamp. It's a lamp that you turn from at noon, it's off, 1230, it's on, 1245, it's off, 1252 and 30 seconds, it's on again, on, off, on, off in uh, having intervals. And so if there are an infinite number of intervals between noon and one, the question then arises, well, what is the state of the lamp at one, at one o'clock? Is it on or is it off? It seems like if you do the mathematical formula, it's both. But in real life, lamps can't be on and off at the same time. So that's one example. Another one that Press puts forward is the Grim Reaper paradox. This would be the idea, the same thing, in a finite time interval, there's a being called a grim reaper that uh, it, it kills you unless you're already dead. There's one that will kill you at one, but another one at, one, at 1230 set to kill you, another at 1215, another at 1207, 1203, and 30 seconds. The idea here is if there's an infinite number of grim reapers, they only kill you if you're not dead. The paradox that arises from this infinite number of reapers in this hour is that as soon as the clock strikes noon, you uh, you can't continue to live, but none of the reapers kills you because there's always one before him. So it's like you can't live and you can't die. It creates a paradox. And there's lots more like these. And I think it's fascinating to investigate. But I think I think Press is really on to something here that infinity, when it's left in the realm of mathematics, it makes sense. But when you try to apply it to the actual world, it doesn't. And that would include in infinite past or infinite causes that doesn't make sense in the real world and so that would put us towards the idea of there being a, a finite beginning in the past so i i know that stuff gets a little complicated but I, I think it's helpful for people to to look out at that yeah the first time i had heard about that reading about it it was a little bit complicated too but when i thought about 
an infinite amount of days before today, infinite meaning infinite forever, meaning right. Oh, we're never going to arrive at today because there's it's always infinity. <laughs> you know, if every day right. to, there's always it just never can arrive at today. So, but we are at today, so therefore we can't have an infinite past. And I thought that was very interesting. Right. And therefore we have to have a, a creator, yeah. but. And some people will say, well, if the past was beginningless, then you could get here because there's an infinite amount of time to which I would, I would respond, well, why didn't the present happen yesterday or the day before that? It would have been accomplished an infinite time period ago. Like yeah. I said, when you add infinity into the real world, you get a lot of messy results that you ought not to. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Um, another uh, argument I wanted to talk about today was uh, the modal ontological argument for God's existence. Uh, what exactly is that for our audience? Yeah, so this is ontological arguments say that God, by his nature, must exist, that there's something just in the concept of God that requires that God exists. Uh, and traditionally, most people have, and I believe the classical ontological argument formed by St. Anselm is faulty. He basically said, well, God is greater than which nothing can be conceived. But if I can think of God in my mind, there's something greater than that, a God who really exists. That doesn't prove that God actually exists. It only proves that if he exists, then he is necessary and he's the greatest conceivable being. Uh, philosopher named Alvin Plantinga work uh, drawing on... Um, is Charles Hartshorn or Norman Malcolm? One of the two, or I'm switching the names around a little. Drawing on that work has used something called modal logic, which deals with necessity and possibility to kind of retrofit this argument a bit. And it goes like this, that if, if God exists, he's a necessary being, all right? So uh, if something, basically, if something though is possible, it exists in a possible world. The actual world is the world you and I exist in. Possible worlds are just different ways of describing the actual world. Okay, there's a possible world where we never had this interview. And there's other possible worlds where there's no such thing as podcasting or things like that. Uh, what the, ontolo the modal ontological argument says that it, it is possible that God exists or it is possible a necessary being exists. If it is possible a necessary being exists, that must mean that a necessary being exists in one of these possible worlds. But a necessary being, by definition, exists in every possible world. So if it is possible for the being, if he exists in one possible world, then he must exist in all of the possible worlds. And if the being exists in all the possible worlds, it must exist in the actual world because the actual world is just one possible world. It just happens to be real. So... Therefore, necessary being exists, therefore God exists. Most philosophers say the argument actually is not invalid. It, it works really well. But the first premise they have concerns about, if it's merely possible that a necessary being exists, then you could reverse the argument. You could say, well, it's possible God doesn't exist. And if it's possible God doesn't exist, he doesn't exist in any possible world. So he doesn't exist in the actual world. You could run it in reverse. But if you're talking about a genuine metaphysical possibility, just like when you spin the roulette table, it's going to be red, black, or double or double zero. It has to be one of the three. That's a bit stronger, and a lot of philosophers aren't sure if we can say God is a legitimate possibility like that. I think that we can. So if you do think that, I think the modal argument has some strength to it. But a lot of people think the argument is kind of just playing around with words, and it's not as uh, convincing to people. But it might be to some people. So many atheists would say, or 
might find a problem with the wording, oh, God must exist. And they'll say something like, well, that's your proof. You know, you don't actually have any proof. You just say God has to exist, and therefore he does. <laughs> I mean, I, I hear this a lot. Well, how would you respond to that? Right. And I would say that the argument doesn't say God must exist because God must exist. That would be a tautology. That's a, a meaningless statement. The point is that let us imagine, could there be a being that must exist, that exists in every possible world? We're just starting with imagining something. Is that possible? Is it possible there is a being that exists in every possible world? Well, if it is possible, then that being must exist in a possible world. But if that being by definition exists in every possible world, the argument begins to follow. You're right. Some atheists will say, well, how do you know God must exist? Because they think that everything that we know has to be empirical. Like, okay, you can only know something about an animal if you observe it in the wild. Um, but that's not the case. We can hypothesize a certain creature. We could say, well, is there a horse that has a, uh, a horn sticking out of its head, a unicorn? Uh, you know, we could, we could say, well, how do you know unicorns have one horn? I'm just saying, is it possible there's an animal like that? Now with animals, with creatures, we do empirical investigation to see if they exist. But with something like God, if we're dealing with a necessary being, something that exists in every universe, every world, then uh, it, it's different to understand whether this being exists or not. So yeah, the people who say, how do you know this or that about God? I'm saying, look, I'm just saying, is this kind of being, this kind of ultimate cause is it possible it exists? Like, what is the greatest kind of thing we can think of? And then we ask the next question, well, does it exist? And then we move from there. It's not special pleading yeah. or anything like that. And I think this goes back to uh, the, ontolo um, the cosmological argument you were talking about. And I think it also delves into the uh, argument from efficient causality, the fact that right. God has to exist. Because if there was only nothing in the beginning, there would only be nothing now because nothing doesn't do anything. <laughs> right, you know, exactly. Nothing is nothing. And if the principle is true that you can't give what you don't have, nothing cannot give existence because it, by definition, it's no existence. It doesn't have existence. So that's what uh, Trent's talking about is the necessary being. There had to be someone out there that by definition had existence because you can't give what you don't have. So there has to be a necessary being that is able to give existence and he is existence by his very nature right. otherwise if you don't have existence you don't have anything right exactly <laughs> um no i'd be interested to know your thoughts on uh the moral knowledge argument and uh how that points to god yeah so um david baguette b-a-g-g-e-t-t -T, i let me see if i got his um name right. He uh, put out a book recently called, uh, oh, it's by uh, Baget and Walls, Baget and Walls, B-A-G-G-E-T-T -T and Jerry Walls. Walls is a uh, Protestant philosopher and theologian. Uh, they have a book called The Moral Argument, A History, and it's just kind of a survey of the moral argument for the existence of God. It's a fascinating argument. It's one that a lot of philosophers don't consider to be very strong, uh, which is the idea that there are objective moral values and duties and only God can explain the existence of these because they think that we have a pretty robust way of explaining morality as is. I'm not sure that that's the case. But even among those, I, I, I say I don't believe that's the case. I think moral arguments actually are good. 
but there is another species of moral argument that some philosophers are very interested in now, which says, look, even if these moral truths existed apart from God, they're just universal ideas. Uh, there's still the question, how do we know, how do we know these things? Like, how do we know the platonic value that rape is always wrong, torture is always wrong, we ought to do the good. These things exist, but they don't exist in nature for our five senses to detect. Rather, it seems to be something that we can apprehend. How are we able to do that? How, how do we come to know these moral truths uh, in a purely material universe? And so the moral knowledge argument says that even if moral facts exist independently of God, I don't think they do, but even if they did, it would be quite the puzzle to explain how we are able to know these facts, these truths uh, that exist in an immaterial way, but also command us to do certain things. Now, some critics will say, well, look, we come to know these truths through evolution. We evolve certain behaviors that are uh, helpful to our species. And through this evolutionary process, we come to know morality, to which the defenders of the moral knowledge argument will say, well, wait a minute, this is a mighty coincidence here. You're saying that we just happened to evolve the moral traits that perfectly correspond to these platonic moral values that exist out there in the universe somewhere? Because we could have easily, through a biological accident, have evolved as a species so that rape was actually a benefit and it was something we evolved as a community to tolerate or even promote, uh, or, or all other sorts of, of negative behaviors. We just happen to evolve all the behaviors that perfectly correspond to these pre-existing moral values. It, would just, it just seems like quite a stretch. Uh, so that, that's called the moral knowledge argument for God. And I think it's one definitely worth uh, exploring for people who are skeptical of general moral arguments for the existence of God. Yeah, because to me, it sounds like... Um... I mean, to me, it sounds subjective. If we evolved morally, it's still subjective. Who who decides what's moral and what's not? It depends on the people. It depends on the time. It depends on the place. Some people in Germany at one point thought murdering a whole entire uh, religion was okay and acceptable. Other people would say, no, that's an abomination. Other people say it's okay you know, to do this or that. Other people say, no, that's wrong. So really, it comes down to subjectivism depending on people. Uh, even if it evolved. And it seems to me that morality is deeper than that. Right is right and wrong is wrong because it's right and because it's wrong. And that is more of an objective principle, which needs an objective source. D does that sound about right? Yeah, I think that's a good objection to that. Yeah, okay. Um, I believe uh, one argument uh, we were talking about earlier is the cosmological argument or that of the fine-tuning of the universe. Yes. Um, what would you say about that? How does fine-tuning, first of all, what does that mean for our audience and, and how does that point to God? Well, fine-tuning is uh, different from the fine-tuning argument. It's a part of it. Fine-tuning just says that out of all of the possible configurations of the constants and conditions in the universe, constants being things like the strong nuclear force, uh, the, the strength of gravity in a vacuum, these things could have been had very different values. And the vast majority, uh, a mind-boggling number of the configurations would be prohibitive towards life. The odds of getting a universe where life could even exist and evolve at all are worse than, let's say, winning 10 poker games in a row, all with royal flushes. So the fact that life exists against such improbable odds 
Uh, in other cases, when uh, valuable things come about against improbable odds, like winning the poker suit, 10 poker games, we see design in that. And I believe we should see design in the universe as well. It's either chance that, that that's ruled out. It could be necessity, but um, there's no reason to think the constants must be the values they are at. We know they can be different because the, the constants are different. The strength of one constant is not the same as another. Why are they the way that they, they are? It seems like there's a better evidence for that this is indicative of some kind of design for the universe. So this argument doesn't prove God exists. It just proves there's some kind of designer of the universe. Now, coupled with other arguments for God, uh, provides a strong cumulative case for the existence of God. Basically, it comes down to the fact that we didn't come about by nothing, from nothing, because of nothing, and for no reason whatsoever. It wasn't uh, a big cosmic accident, or for that matter, trillions and trillions of trillions of virtually impossible cosmic accidents that actually right. had to be designed. And that's a much more likely and logical explanation, right? Mm -hmm. Right, precisely. Yeah. Um, now, I find that, you know, there's a lot of good proof for God. One of my favorite is the uh, argument from uh, efficient causality. And um, I actually like the argument from contingency as well. But, you know, there's there's good arguments out there that are very logically based. And I find that many people, no matter what the evidence is, no matter how solid it is, I mean, some people may bring up other things as well, but there are some people who aren't ever going to believe, you know, right. maybe because they don't want to. And I tend to find maybe it's my own labeling. I label them emotional atheists. You know, there's some people who don't want to believe, even if there is evidence, you know, they're always going to find something wrong. They're always going to pick a hole in your argument. There's always going to be a problem of why they personally don't believe. And I remember uh, a debate with Richard Dawkins, who's one of the most famous atheists. And someone asked him, you know, what, what, uh, would you need God to do to believe? You know, what, what What would you want God to do? And I don't remember where I heard this or what debate it was, but he said something to the effect that, well, maybe if I saw like a, a 200 or 600 foot Jesus walking toward me and said, hey, I'm Jesus, you know, believe in me. Mr. Dawkins said, okay, I would believe. But then, you know, the theist, the Christian said, would you really or would you more likely say my mind is playing tricks on me? Right. Because in his book, The God Delusion, he was saying that, you know, if a statue waves its arm and actually waves at you, he was saying, oh, that could just be chance. You know, that's right. not miraculous, you know, and, you know, or my mind is playing tricks on me. But, you know, my point is that you can always say, oh, what if, what if, what if, you know, and somewhere, right. somehow your heart has to be open to the truth, right? It does. Uh, the, the catechism says the arguments for the existence of God can predispose us to faith, but faith itself is a supernatural gift we have to be open and receptive towards. Yeah. And what, what would you give, uh, what, I guess, advice would you give to our audience, those listening today, about how you can deal with people who are skeptics, who are atheists, who are uh, just agnostic? I mean, people have good questions. They do. And we as a church, I don't think, have not given good answers over the last 40 years or so. The good answers are there. We right. just haven't done a good job of communicating that. So how, how could we help people who are struggling with these questions and doubts? I think we should just have a dialogue and understand it's going to take time. We should ask them questions about what they believe, why they think that, help them to see some of their assumptions maybe unfounded, mm -hmm. and then be patient with them. And when they have questions and concerns, go out and find those answers that are there and not treat it like a one-time debate, but a journey where we're accompanying them towards the truth.
I think that's important because I know in my own dialogues, I've countless, countless atheists I've talked to, agnostics, skeptics, and many people have said to me, you know what, if I knew this, I probably would have never left Christianity. You know, if I had known these things, you know, that makes a lot of sense. I would have come back to the church a long time ago. So I think they, a lot of people do want to believe and they need good, clear, logical reasons to believe. And I think that's a burden on us to learn our faith, to study our faith. And again, I want to point to your book uh, for all of our listeners out there. Um, it's called Answering Atheism, and it really does uh, talk about the different arguments for the existence of God in a lot of deep detail. Uh, but it also talks about how to reach people, questions they might ask, responses they might ask. And I believe if I remember when I read this, uh, that you have like, oh yeah, you do. You have mock uh, question and uh, like oh, uh, dialogues, discussions. Yes. Yeah, dialogues, dialogues. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, which is, which is good. And I have to plug my own book real quick, just in case anyone might be interested, but it's called, why do you believe in God? And it's 15 real conversations that I've had with atheists and skeptics. So you get to hear both sides, how to respond and that sort of thing, if anyone's interested in that too. Um, but before we go, Trent, do you have any closing thoughts uh, on the existence of God or just anything on evidence or no, advice I, for I people? Just, yeah, my advice would just be uh, that knowing God exists is not the same thing as being in relationship with God. We always have mm -hmm. to build up a strong relationship with God in prayer. And we have atheist friends and family members just to not treat them with scorn or sarcasm, but to be gentle with them, to ask questions and yeah, just accompany them on this and be a good witness to the faith in word and deed. And uh, I will again put your links to your podcast down below, to your books down below. I believe that Trent has a full debate with an atheist, at least one. Mm -hmm. And I will put the find that and I will put that down below as well if anyone's interested in hearing both sides and uh, seeing the logic and clarity of the theist side. But I want to thank you, Trent, for coming on our show today. I want to thank you for talking about this topic because I think it's one that many people struggle with, many people have questions on, and it's good to have good answers. So thank you. Anytime. Thank you for having me. And I want to thank all of our listeners out there for always tuning in, for supporting our YouTube, our podcast, and our ministry. Please continue to pray for us. We will pray for you. Please check out our show notes below. We have our Facebook, our Instagram, our podcast, and all the other things in our YouTube show notes below. And you can also check out our Patreon and our PayPal down there. Make sure to like this video, comment, and subscribe. God bless you, and we'll see you next time.